are in the third and final week of our current series, all about the importance of living our faith in the context of community. At Nativity, small groups are our strategy for helping you to live your life connected to other Christ followers. And the aim of this series, as we've said from the very beginning, has been to get you into a small group for our Lenten series, which begins next week. We have a a goal of getting 1,000 new people into small groups this Lent. In addition to the 1,500 people already in small groups, 1,000 new people. And we've set such a high bar for ourselves because we believe now, more than ever before, people need Christian community. Now, more than ever before, we need to be connected. Over the past two years, we've struggled in isolation. In many ways, we're still struggling. And there's mounting evidence that this entire COVID experience has negatively impacted many people's mental and emotional health. Friendship and fellowship are good. They're just good for our spirit. They're good for our soul. They're good for us. Without help and support, we run out of energy. We run out of steam in our work life, in our school life, in our home life, in our faith life. The basic scripture verse for this series that we've been turning to is St. Paul's letter to the Romans, which perfectly sums up the case. St. Paul wrote to the church in Rome, I long to see you that we might be mutually encouraged by one another's faith. I will learn from your faith, and you will learn from mine. It's about support in our faith. And let's face it, our world right now doesn't exactly do much to support faith. Not at all, far from it. There's just not that much out there in our culture to support and encourage us. Your faith and mine It's just more difficult to sustain, more difficult to even hold on to, all alone and on our own. It's easier to stay focused. It's easier to sustain with one another. Jesus himself modeled this approach for us while his preaching and teaching attracted great crowds wherever he went. He very deliberately gathered a close community of 12 apostles, a specific small circle of friends and followers who grew together in their faith. The invitation to follow the Lord is always and also an invitation into some specific community of his followers. So last weekend was the official small group launch in which we invited you to take the opportunity to sign up and get involved. The good news, despite the snow, It was a great weekend, and over 800 people signed up to give small groups a try for this season of Lent. The even better news is that there's still a week left to get into a group. If you missed out, if you didn't sign up last week, there's still time. You can do it right after Mass today. And today I'm going to briefly and gently make my closing argument for those of you who remain unconvinced or merely disinterested. 
As we've discussed in the course of this series, small groups are where we encourage one another by providing friends in faith. Small groups, in fact, are our delivery system for member care. Small groups are the place where our great big church gets up close and personal, where you can be known and loved and cared for. Small groups inevitably provide models and mentors, people who are a little bit ahead of you on the road of life, or know something about living that you can learn from. Last week, we also took some time to look more carefully at one other reason that groups can be so helpful and so important to living a vibrant faith. We said faith is personal, but it's not private. It's meant to be lived in community, but it's also meant to develop in community. We invest in friends in faith in order to grow in faith. Today, we're going to look at one other value, one additional value of small groups that we haven't yet mentioned. And it's simple, and it's simply this. Small groups develop relationships that support your other relationships. Small groups develop relationships that support your other relationships. Think about it. In your family relationships, work relationships, school relationships, you have to be on. You have to be on. Even in entirely authentic relationships, even in loving relationships, people want and need something from you. You have a role to play, responsibilities that must be fulfilled, professional standards to be observed, expectations to be met, work to be done. In a small group, there are no expectations. Other than showing up and being respectful, no one expects anything out of you. There is no role for you to play. And into that neutral environment, you can bring your struggles and challenges, your frustrations and fears, your hopes and dreams. You can process it all with people who have no vested interest in any particular outcome beyond supporting you, just as you're there to simply support others. Conversations, conversations that are unlike any others in your life. In exactly this way, groups can be the place where you can most easily practice the counsel and direction which Jesus gives us on relationships in today's gospel. Jesus gives us solid and specific counsel and direction on how we should be acting toward one another. And frankly, what he proposes does not come naturally or easily to us. It takes practice. We're looking at the sixth chapter of Luke's gospel. This is a very famous portion of the gospel, often referred to as the Sermon on the Plain, because Luke tells us that Jesus taught it standing on a level field. It parallels the so-called Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus preached some of the same lessons on a hillside. In these verses, Jesus offers his basic teaching on how to deal with people, 
how to deal with people, especially people who are frustrating or annoying or unhelpful or worse. This teaching of Jesus, which was new in the whole history of the world, is so unexpected that it's important, it's helpful to keep in mind two truths. First truth, Jesus is teaching the path of character development. In our heart of hearts, we all desire to do good, to be good. Unless you're a sociopath, you're drawn to the good and so am I. We're drawn to the good because God is good. And God wants us to desire him and his love above all else. That we so often fall short due to a variety of factors in no way diminishes the fact that we desire the good. And Jesus is showing us the most successful path to fulfill that desire and strengthen our character. Second truth, it's got to keep in mind, Jesus knows what he's talking about. He was the wisest person who ever lived. He knows how life works. He knows how relationships work and how human action, interaction can be more successful. And don't forget, he had to deal with more than his share of difficult people. His relatives at one point tried to upend his ministry. His closest associates, the apostles, were constantly fighting with each other. And at one point, a critical point, bailed on him. He was rejected and opposed by the religious leaders and betrayed by one of his top guys. So when Jesus tells us how to deal with difficult people and difficult situations, he's speaking out of experience and we should be paying attention to him. So he begins his counsel in this way. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Sometimes other people can feel like the enemy and their behavior towards us comes across as harmful, even hateful. Sometimes our enemies are the people on the outside of our lives looking in, a competitor, a rival, a foe. Sometimes they're much closer to home, a nagging parent, an ungrateful, whiny child, co-worker, classmate, who always criticizes and complains. And Jesus says, to succeed in such relationships and to grow in goodness through them at the same time requires nothing less than love. As we discussed a few weeks ago, love has the potential to challenge and change the dynamics of almost any situation. Instead of trading hate for hate and becoming a victim of another's hate, choosing to respond in love instead can turn the situation upside down, and it can turn you into the hero of your own story. Next, he gives some more specific instruction on what that might mean, how specifically to follow through on loving your enemies. Basically, He's got three points. Do good to those who do not do good for you. 
When someone is opposing you, choose to find a way to serve them instead. Bless those who do not wish you blessing. In other words, speak positive words to them and over them and for them. And then the hardest one of all, at least it's the hardest one for me, meet mistreatment with prayer. Pray for those who mistreat you. Offer them up to God. In other words, act in a completely counterintuitive way, a way that in fact defies common sense itself. Take the bad behavior of someone else and act in exactly the opposite way each and every time you encounter it. He sums this all up in this way. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Not do to others as they do to you. Do to others as you would have them do to you. It's called the golden rule. It's called the golden rule because gold has value. Gold adds value. And this kind of attitude and approach, this kind of behavior adds value to your life. It makes you more valuable in the sight of eternity. Before you act in any given situation, think through how you would like someone to treat you if you were in their shoes. Would you want kindness, patience, understanding? That's the behavior you need to extend to others. Oh, and one other thing too, expect nothing in return. Expect nothing back. Empty your expectations. Your heavenly Father shows grace and favor all the time, and he gets nothing back. Be like that. Be like him. Loving and giving with absolutely no expectation of any kind of transaction or immediate return can purify our giving and in the process purify our hearts. It's not at all about an immediate return. It's about an investment, an investment with long-term rewards. He concludes, give, and gifts will be given to you. A good measure, packed together, shaken down, and overflowing will be poured into your lap. There's some bad people out there for sure. And we have to protect ourselves and our families against them and the harm they can do us. But most all of the time, Jesus' counsel is the wisest counsel. It's the best because it's in our best interest. It all comes down to generosity. It's about being generous. Generous in spirit toward others' faults and failures. Generous in mercy toward others' transgressions. Generous to be slow to believe the worst about someone and quick to believe the best. Generously being for others and not against them. It's a beautiful way to live. It's a perfect way to live, but it takes practice and it requires support. You know, Christian living is really about conversion. It's about ongoing conversion. We hear that word conversion and we think of converts, 
people maybe outside the Catholic Church who are preparing to enter into the church. But ongoing conversion is for all of us. We should all be pursuing ongoing conversion in the sense of growing as friends and followers of the Lord and developing character in the process. We aren't for a moment trying to suggest that getting into a small group is the only way to do that, not at all. It's just, it's just that we found it's a very accessible way and more often than not, it's a very successful way to do it. You might say, well, what's the big deal? Small groups are just conversations. They're just ongoing conversations. They're conversations. They're conversations that can lead to conversion. 